So I've been preaching now for almost 30 years, and this is the first time I've ever tried to preach a sermon from Peter's second letter. And I'll bet a lot of you didn't even know that near the back of our New Testaments, there is a humble little missive ascribed to the chief apostle. Now, New Testament scholars are almost unanimous in their agreement that this letter is almost certainly not from the pen of the Apostle Peter, as it claims to be, but was more probably written by some lesser scribe, borrowing, for the moment, St. Peter's grander reputation among the early Christians in order to give his humble missive a more luminous sheen. Peter's second letter uh, may have been the last and latest book of the New Testament, written maybe as late as the second century, at least a hundred years removed from the Christ it tries to honor, and the very last book of the Bible to make it by the skin of its teeth into the accepted canon of the 27 endorsed works of the New Testament. For centuries then, Peter's second letter has garnered about as much journalistic credibility as Rolling Stone magazine is experiencing just now. Yet here it is for us on the second Sunday of Advent, and you can see why. In the last days, writes pseudo-Peter to his fledgling Christians, in the last days, scoffers will arise, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the first day of creation. So you see what's going on, right? Before he left, Jesus had promised to come back to take the faithful out of trouble and home to glory. And he'd promised to do this soon, like within the lifetimes of his friends. And now a hundred years have come and gone, his friends are all dead, and all things continue as they were from the first day of creation. Neither fleeting glimpse of nor faint whipper from the Christ who promised to come again in glory. Caesar is still dictating from his prominent palace in Rome, and the early Christians are being blamed for everything from Nero's version of the Chicago fire to every last defeat of the Roman armies at the hands of the barbarians. And so Peter's second letter is addressed to us too, 1,900 years after it was written, because we're in the same enduring predicament as that little church Peter first posted his missive to. Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the first day of creation. The Christian church, you see, has taught for 2,000 years that at his first coming at Bethlehem, that first Christmas, it was God's definitive self-revelation, the most definitive in all of history. It was to have been history's hinge, in a shabby stable in a hick town of shopkeeps and shepherds to an unwed teenager in a, an obscure corner of the Roman Empire, the creator of all the burning stars and flying worlds, reclaims God's wayward creation, they said. Above those shepherds' fields, a vast army of angels promised glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among all people of good purpose." And yet, ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning. Just when you think people of good purpose have one problem licked, another rushes in to fill the vacuum, 
In the last 100 years, exactly 100 years, democracy has defeated, in turn, the Kaiser, the Fuhrer, the Bolshevik, the Stalinist, and the Maoist. And when the Berlin Wall came crashing down 25 years ago, the free world thought that maybe now we were enjoying that world peace promised by the angels in those shepherds' fields so long ago. But then, of course, along comes Hussein and Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. States rise up to frustrate freedom over and over again down the years. Over the centuries, humanity has cornered, if not exactly defeated, one disease after another. The plague, measles, tuberculosis, and polio, among others. And now even the scourge of AIDS is staggering backward in rapid retreat. And now some new virus arises to confront a vast continent without the resources to battle it. In America, slavery ended 152 years ago next month, but African Americans don't always feel free after incidents in New York, Ferguson, Cleveland, and Phoenix. Ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the first day of creation. And so, pseudo-Peter's gentle word of reassurance is God's word for us today, too. Remember, beloved, that a thousand years is as a day for the Lord, and a day is as a thousand years. And the Lord is not slow to keep the Lord's promise, and that day will come like a thief in the night. And therefore, we wait for a new heaven and a new earth with lives of godliness and holiness, striving to be found by him when he comes for us again at peace without spot or blemish. The season of Advent, you see, is like the Roman god Janus with two faces. One face of Advent faces back in memory to that first Christmas at Bethlehem so long ago, and the other face faces forward to the end of time when he will come again. At Advent, we wait for the one who came and who will come again. And we wait with the uncontainable joy of the child, We wait for Christmas and for God's final righteousness with the intense expectation and unflagging hope of the child in those days running up to Christmas. Willie, take your little drum. With your whistle, Robin, come. When we hear the fife and drum, Christmas should be frolicsome. Thus the folk of olden days love the king of kings to praise. When they hear the fife and drum, sure, our children won't be dumb. God and we are now become more at one than fife and drum when we hear the fife and drum dance and make the village hum. Do you remember what Advent felt like when you were a child? All that waiting from Thanksgiving to Christmas Eve? Christmas is so luminous and so miraculous that to a child, Advent feels longer than the Babylonian captivity. Do you remember what it was like? I remember as a child when Christmas Eve would finally, finally arrive at my home and I would press my nose against the window pane of the dining room window awaiting the arrival of gift-bearing relatives hoping to hasten their appearance by wishing it into being. And one year my younger brother, who is 17 months younger than I and three inches shorter and therefore couldn't press his nose against the window pane, bit with his teeth. He was so excited into the wooden windowsill, leaving a dental impression there. (laughs) 
that I'm sure survives to this day as a symbol of childhood yuletide expectation. Mama was not happy. That was 50 years ago, and I still remember it today. And so all our lives long, we wait for God with the anticipation of a child in the days before Christmas. No matter how everything continues as it was from the first day of creation, no matter how many times human freedom is thwarted, no matter what new malice rises up to replace the despots we've just unseated, no matter what scars life inflicts upon us, no matter how many times we have our hearts broken by the loss of those we love, we will continue to wait for his coming into our lives once again with the intense expectation and unflagging hope of childhood. December 7, said President Roosevelt, is a day which will live in infamy. And so the anniversary gives me the excuse to talk about one of my favorite books from the past 10 years. How many of you have read Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand? It's about half. Don't worry if you haven't read it because Angelina Jolie is bringing it to the silver screen for us starting Christmas Day. You know what I'm thankful for this holiday season? I'm thankful for Hollywood. All these extraordinary books they make extraordinary movies out of just in the last few years. Anna Karenina, Les Miserables, Captain Phillips, Team of Rivals, The Book Thief, The Help, 12 Years a Slave, and now Unbroken, about Louis Zamperini, a rebellious miscreant from California who gets his life on the right track by running track by becoming an Olympian with Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin and running in front of Adolf Hitler himself. And then he joins the Air Force after Pearl Harbor or whatever the Air Force was called before it was the Air Force and he starts flying B-24s in the Pacific campaign. And his B-24 goes down in the Pacific on May 27, 1943. He spends 47 days in a life raft in the middle of the Pacific, eating a little raw fish and drinking, drinking a little rainwater. And then he spends 28 months in a POW camp under withering persecution before finally stumbling home in October of 1945. It's an amazing story of unflagging hope and resilience. He reached the age of 97 before finally packing it in this July. But it's Louise's mother and namesake Louise I want to talk about this morning. I just fell in love with Louise when I read this book. Word reached Louise's home in Torrance, California on June 4, 1943 that Louis was missing in action. And instantly, Louise was seized with the conviction that Louis was still alive. Miss Hillenbrand writes, To the family, Louis was among them still. They would talk about him as, in the present tense as if he were just down the street. Louis, Louise begged the Air Force to keep looking for him. She knew, she just knew that he was out there somewhere. In July, the Air Force sent her a letter telling her that they'd stopped looking for him and they hoped she would accept the difficult truth. Louise ripped the letter to shreds. And all that summer and fall, as the Zamperinis walked around Torrance running their errands, 
the town folk would avert their eyes with consternation and puzzlement. You poor people, you poor Zamperinis, they all seem to be saying in their not unkind ways, why do you keep waiting? Why do you keep hoping? Why won't you face reality? At Christmas of 1943, there was a big pile of presents for Louis under the Christmas tree. And when he didn't come home, they set them aside unopened for the day he would come home. After you've been missing in action for 13 months, the Air Force automatically declares you dead. And so that happened for Louis in June of 1944. When Louise received the death notice a few days later, she burst into tears, and then she realized, this is just a piece of paper. This doesn't change anything. Later, Louise's sister Sylvia will remember, none of us believed it, not one of us, never once, not for one second, not even privately, we knew he was coming home. And when he did, in October of 1945, there were those Christmas presents waiting for him from Christmas two years before. And I guess for me, the Zamperinis became a parable of that intense expectation and unflagging hope of Advent. And so while we wait, we live with lives of holiness and godliness, striving to be found by him when he comes for us again at peace, without spot or blemish. We wait with the joy of children in the days before Christmas, with unflagging hope. Willie, take your little drum, with your whistle, Robin, come. When we hear the fife and drum, Christmas should be frolicsome. Thus the folk of olden days loved the king of kings to praise when they hear the fife and drum. Sure, our children won't be dumb. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.